to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For the past couple weeks, we have been in a new series that focuses on worship. How many of us depend on our circumstances to determine what our worship will be like? In today's message, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer gives us five key components of true worship. We also get to see how Jesus' mother and a few others handled worship in some of the hardest circumstances. You can catch that outline in the show notes below. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Components of True Worship. Chapter 1. Luke 1, we're studying this Christmas about worship and what is worship, what isn't worship. And this morning we're going to look at some components of true worship as we look at the worship of Mary uh, when it is revealed to her that she will bear the Christ child and she is speaking with Elizabeth. The truth is, at Christmas time, everybody worships something. Uh, Because humans are incurably worshipful beings. If we are not worshiping the one true God, Romans 1 says we will exchange it, the truth of God and what can be known about God for creeping things and idols. Man must worship. We will worship a sports team. We will worship uh, idols. We will worship ourselves. We will worship money. And even at Christmas time, we can find ourselves worshiping or pursuing not so much the glory of God, but just nostalgic feelings or our own desires. And at that point, our worship services become our parties, and our offerings become the gifts that we give to people. Our songs of, and hymns of praise are simply of Christmases long, long ago, and, and it's simply seeking a nostalgic, warm feeling. Uh, Christmas has a way, however, of revealing the true heart of worship. Christmas and how we celebrate Christmas reveals what it is that we worship. And Christmas, if nothing else, is supposed to be a worship of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, that he has come to earth for us. We need to remember as Christians, we can enjoy all the extras of Christmas and the trappings of Christmas and the stories. And I'm not saying that nostalgic feelings are a bad thing. I enjoy them myself. Uh, But we have to remember that when we come together for Christmas, it is principally about the worship of Jesus Christ. It is he who knows when we are sleeping. He knows when we're awake. It is for his sake that we are good, uh, and we are good for God's sake. It is Jesus Christ. uh, We are not waiting for the arrival of a jolly old elf as much as we are awaiting the arrival of Jesus Christ who will come and give us the only gift that we need this Christmas. And in the meantime, we offer Jesus not a plate of milk and cookies so much as it is that we offer him our very lives in a, as a response to worship. Remember, we talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2. He begged us as Christians to consider who God is, and as an appropriate response to the gospel, we give our lives as a living sacrifice, a continual outpouring of our lives in a response to what Jesus has done for us. Well, this morning, we're going to see in Luke 1, we're going to look at the worship of Mary. We find this young girl around age 15 or 16. She is a very, uh, very young at this time. It was not unusual for a girl of this age to be betrothed. And so here we find her. Uh, we're going to pick up her story just after it has been announced to her by the angel Gabriel, God's messenger. Last time we saw him, back in the book of Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 10, uh, and now he is announcing uh, not these different prophecies of God, but the fulfillment of these prophecies. Jesus is this one, the one that we spoke of back in the Old Testament. It is he who has come today. 
And so Gabriel has just spoken to her in verse 31 and said, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. And so her response to this meeting is recorded here in Luke chapter one, immediately following in what is often called, it may even be a subtitle in your Bible, Mary's Magnificat. It's not a term we use often because it's a Latin term. It comes from the Latin version of the Bible, the first word in her praise, magnify or magnificat. And so we're going to study uh, Mary's worship of God and see if there's some things that we can learn even about our own worship. We're gonna see number one here that worship is not dependent upon our circumstances. As we look at Mary, as we look at the context, the historical context of where the Christmas story finds itself, Mary and the nation of Israel, they're not, this isn't the best of times. They are under Roman occupation. They're not in control of their own land. If you will, God has been silent to them for 400 years. This is something unusual in Israel's history. They've always had a word from God, whether it was uh, all the way back from Abraham, if it's through the books of Moses, it is through, you know, God is speaking to Joshua, God is speaking to them through all the prophets, and the very last word of this Old Testament is, is curse, okay? God has, Israel is under this, this judgment of God, if you will. They have departed from their God. God has had to remove them into captivity because of their idolatry and things. And now they're finding themselves in a 400-year period of silence. Their God is not speaking to them. They're being governed by the Romans. Taxes are high. Nobody likes taxes. And so this is a really difficult period of time for her. Moreover, we see that Mary, remember we said historians are, are estimating her age somewhere around age 15 or 16, to be betrothed. And betrothed was a very serious thing back then. It, it bear the, bore the same weight as even a marriage would. If you were betrothed to somebody, it would require a formal divorce to be separated from them. And here it is that Mary's betrothed, her husband-to-be has gone away as they would do. He would build his business, he would prepare the home, he would prepare a place for her and come again one day to receive her unto himself. Picture of what Christ is doing right now for the church. But Mary's betrothed unto him and the worst possible news comes to her ears. Mary, you are pregnant. You are going to conceive this Christ child in your womb, which is equal parts exciting and invigorating, and also it could be a terrifying thing. If you are betrothed and you end up pregnant, people are going to assume things about you. Uh, moreover, it could be that Mary herself would be killed, because under the law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it talked about if this person uh, who is betrothed, who is in a formal marriage contract, would be found with child, with someone else's child, not the husband, that this person could be stoned, could be killed. That's why Joseph had it in his mind to put her away privately. He wasn't going to continue through with this marriage, but he also didn't want to see her dead. And so Mary had every reason in the world right now to be discouraged, to be despairing. The, the news, the onset of this news, of this, this great Christmas announcement from the angel would have been anything but exciting for most of us. And yet we find with Mary, she is eager to express worship to God even under these circumstances. So as soon as the angel tells her the news, we, we pick it up here in verse 39. It says, in those days, the days we just described, the difficult days, the hard days, the, the days in which she, was, she received this news, Mary arose and went with haste. She's eager to express worship to God. And she went into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Now, let's pause there for a second. What does this already reveal to us about the baby in her womb? This is a real human, isn't it? Okay. The baby leapt in her womb just at the greeting of this. In fact, verse 44 is going to say that this child who is still in the womb is capable of expressing joy. And so this baby is a real human who is expressing joy. And with that, it says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that the, the Holy Spirit has come upon Elizabeth for a particular purpose and reason. She's about to give a prophetic utterance. Mary has been done nothing so far other than just to simply give Elizabeth a greeting. The baby has leapt in her womb. And now Elizabeth is already telling Mary why she came here. Okay. So she, Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Okay? God has his hand upon you. You are, you are under the favor, the divine favor and pleasure of God. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, which is Jesus. And why is it granted to me? Look at the humility of Elizabeth here. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, so Mary and Elizabeth are rejoicing together in the worst of possible times. This Christmas was not a, everything was going well for them, much like it may be for you today. It may be that this Christmas season, you're just not in the Christmas spirit, you're not feeling it, you play the music, and it just hits you, and it does nothing for you, uh, because it's a hard time for you. You know, maybe you received a difficult medical prognosis. Maybe, maybe your children have, you know, been anything but considerate to you. Maybe uh, you're estranged from some of your children. Maybe it is that at this time of year you're struggling to make ends meet with bills. Maybe you've lost a job. There's some reason why in your heart you're finding it difficult to engage in the worship of God. Well, Mary had every reason and every possible excuse not to engage in the worship of God, and yet we see that she's going to do that very thing. But what I want you to see here is Mary is not going to rejoice in her circumstances. Oh, thank God. God is good. He gave me everything I wanted for Christmas. She's going to rejoice, rather. Elizabeth is noting here. She says, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Her rejoicing wasn't in her circumstances. Her rejoicing is in the fact that Christmas is a regular reminder, an annual signpost to us that God fulfills his promises. Okay, there's, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus and his coming and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so we see that Christmas, it's a reminder, God can be trusted. You can trust God with your life. You can still have joy today because you know with certainty what's going to happen tomorrow because you can look in the past and see that we have a God who fulfills everything that he promises. He can be trusted. And so in that, she is rejoicing. In that, Mary and Elizabeth both find themselves blessed. And the truth is, all of our worship has to arise from times like this. Is there ever a time in your life when everything is going well? Anybody want to raise your hand and just say, there's absolutely nothing in my life that I would change right now? All of our worship will arise from times of difficulty. Mary's going through a difficult time here. Mary's got a lot of explaining to do. Mary's name is going to be blasted. We, we know this because even when Jesus is grown and older, they will accuse Jesus as having been born as a product of adultery. And so it's, it's not like we just covered this up. Everybody knows that Mary was pregnant, but not with Joseph's child. And yet she worships. 
Uh, Job, when he worshiped, remember, remember Job uh, in the Bible, the Old Testament? Uh, you have this man, Job, and he was a man the Bible describes as an upright man who shunned evil. This is a good fellow. And anyway, Satan says the only reason he worships you is because you give him everything he needs. God says, I'll let you strike everything but his life. And he did. Okay, and, he, and all of this was taken from him. His kids all die. His livestock, okay, that's, that's like somebody draining your 401k. His livestock is gone. Uh, his house, all these things are caving in. His whole life is falling apart. He's sitting in the middle of town with all these, these boils and sores in his body. He's scraping himself with old chunks of pottery. And even his wife is saying, curse God and die. She's encouraging him not to be godly. And yet, what do we read about Job in Job chapter 1 in verse 20? He says, Job arose and tore his robe. Okay, that didn't mean he was angry. It was a sign of, of, of remorse, of grief, of repentance. He shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. Is that you and I's knee-jerk response to pain, suffering, and difficulty? Is that we worship God? Job worshiped, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. In other words, what I receive and get in my life on this earth isn't of great consequence to me, because I know I'm going to be with the Lord someday. I'm living for that day. I know that my Redeemer lives, okay? And Job, sa and it says, Job says this. He says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. What does Job recognize there, by the way? The sovereignty of God. Does Job blame Satan? Oh, Satan's at work. He's not saying Satan. Who is it that gave? The Lord. Who is it also that took away what he had? It was the Lord. We don't like to admit that one. That when we lose things, it's not because God made a mistake, he had an accident, bad things happen. Even the bad things that happen in our life are as a response of a, are, are the actions of a sovereign God in our life, and therefore God can be trusted even when Bad things are brought into our life. And nonetheless, even knowing that God is the one who has allowed the taking away of these things in his life, Job still says, blessed be the name of the Lord, and in all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And I guess just the question for me is, as we look at Mary, as we look at Job, and those who, every time we worship, it's always going to be worshiping through tears, through difficulty, through suffering, through the fact that I don't have everything that I want, that life isn't going my way, I'm gonna still choose to offer my worship up to God because it's an expression of the worthiness of the Lord. And so all of us, we're going to choose to worship through the pain and not just simply, oh, phew, God removed that pain from my life, now I can go back to church. Oh, God removed this situation. He has provided for me. I've overcome this cancer or whatever. Now I can worship God. Mary, Job, and others, true worship is expressed through pain. Sometimes we give God a sacrifice of praise. Number two, we see that worship magnifies God, that God and specifically Jesus Christ is the center focal point of our worship. Mary says in verse 46, and there's so much packed into just this little bit here. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is the first and most fundamental principle of worship, that when we worship God, our intention is to magnify the Lord, okay? The root Greek word of this is where we get the English word mega, meaning big. It's something enlarged. Uh, it, it means to amplify something. It's where we get the word megaphone, Okay, you can't hear me if I'm just talking and then sometimes we'll get a megaphone and, we'll, and it will project our voice so that you can hear it, so that you can pay attention, so that you can respond to my voice. That's a megaphone. 
Or sometimes even just the English word of the use, magnify. What do we do? We have a magnifying glass, and we will look at things. It will blow it up. It will make it bigger. It will amplify it so that we can see the details. There's something here that I need to know about. It's significant to my life, and so I'm going to magnify it. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to examine it. I'm going to study this thing because this is significant to my life. This is what Mary says she does with the Lord. She magnifies, she makes him bigger because there's things we need to know about God. There's details about him that we don't know. We don't need a long distance view of God. We need a close up view of who he is so we can admire him in all the great details of what makes our God, God. When we magnify God, it's because we hope that others will see in God what we see in him. We hope that others will love God as much as we love God. And so we magnify the details of these things. It was once when I was a little kid, my, uh, one of the houses I grew up in, my dad had this big, long barn. It was this unusually long barn. There was a bunch of cars stored in there. It's something that the you know, American pickers would love to go into. It's just this big, long barn full of stuff. And there was a lot of old cars in there. And I happened to be following my dad around one day and walked into the barn, and, and he decided he was going to give me a tour of the different cars that are in this barn. Now, mind you, I'm a, I'm a little child. I'm very unimpressed with the cars that I see thus far. They are not shiny. They're not clean. They're not new. They are covered in just dirt. They are covered in pigeon droppings. Uh, many of the cars are in various states of disrepair. The wheels, uh, the tires are all deflated and checked, and some of the wheels are gone on some of these cars. They, some of the cars are missing parts and pieces, even engines of some of these cars. Nonetheless, he was very impressed with what was in there. And so he would take me around, and he'd point over in the corner, that over there is a 57 Chevy. Okay. Over here, this is a 36 Ford pickup. Now, it was very impressive, unimpressive to me because it had a wood box that had rotted off. It's just this old, beat-up-looking pickup uh, just covered in dust and dirt, and it doesn't run. I have no use for this. But he, he still continued the tour. He'd go over here, and he'd be like, look at this here. And I'd see a car with no engine, no interior. I mean, it's just the shell. And he'd say, this is a 55 Ford Fairline hardtop convertible. He says, the Beatles drove one of these at one time. And so he was just very impressed. And then he came over to something that was very special to him. He says, and this is the car that I got married in. It's a 67 Cougar. And he'd say, I want you to look at this car. He says, now some people like the, the Mustang better, but I like the lines of the Cougar better. And he'd show me all the parts. Right here, these are mag wheels. I still don't know what a mag wheel is. It, it was lost on me. And he'd come back here and say, look at the exhaust. I didn't know what I was looking at, but he's pointing back here. It's got glass packs. Again, I don't know what a glass pack is, but my dad gave me the sound effect. You know, and he's making the noise that this car makes. And he says, you need to look on the inside. And he opens it up, and there's this leather-wrapped steering wheel. And uh, and, and bucket seats, not a bench seat, mind you, bucket seats, which was a big deal, I guess, back then. And uh, he'd show me that it had the latest of technology, remember, eight-track cassettes, okay? It had an eight-track player in the car, and I was most impressed that it just had a CB, like the Dukes of Hazard. you know? Uh, it, it was just, it, it, he was so fascinated. Why is he spending all this time detailing all of these things about this 67 Cougar? Because it's special to him. It's dear to him. He got married in this car. He loves this car, and he wants me to love this car as much as he loves this car. So what he was doing there, what I just described to you there, is the magnification of this car. Left to myself, I'm going to go, this is a dumpy old car full of dust and bird poop. And he's like, you can't appreciate this car until I magnify it and show you really what this car is all about. You need to love it like I do. And this is what Mary does with God. In fact, this is what Mary is going to do with God all throughout the Magnificat. It is a magnification of the Lord. 
It is, it is enlarging who God is so that we can see it and appreciate him. In fact, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She recognizes the lordship of, of, of God, even of Christ, in her life. That her soul is there to magnify God. Mary's worship wasn't about her. I think we need to understand that when we come to a church to worship. When you come to a church, a lot of times people will rate a church based upon its worship style, its seating, uh, it, how quick the pastor lets you get out. Okay? We measure churches by these standards, but these are external things. These are things that personally benefit me. What is worship truly about? It's about magnifying the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the focus and the object of our worship. We're not. And so ultimately, when we come to church, it doesn't matter if I like the music selection. It doesn't matter if it got me toe-tapping, if, if it stirred me up emotionally. It, it, those aren't the primary concerns in our worship. When we come to God's house to worship, our heart and our soul needs to be magnifying, not ourselves and my desires and what I want church to be. It should be magnifying the Lord and who he is and what he has done. When we've done that, we've magnified God and we've worshiped. I'm not saying style doesn't matter. But our purpose in coming here is to magnify the Lord. And look where this worship originates. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's talking about from her inner man. She's not externally religious. We talked last week about the, uh, the, the symptoms of mechanical worship. This isn't mechanical to Mary. She's not going to you know, synagogue because it's the right time. I mean, I'm here and I'm gonna genuflect and I'm gonna bow and I'm gonna stand up, I'm gonna sing, I'm gonna tip God, I'm gonna go out the door. She's, she is genuinely worshiping God from deep down from within. Her heart has come to a realization of who God is and her heart's response to that is genuine and true worship. And so she is magnifying God. She doesn't need anything external to just stir up her emotions so much. She doesn't need a driving drum beat to feel like she's worshiping God. I'm not saying I don't enjoy the drums, okay? Uh, she didn't need, though, uh, a giant crowd of people in a stadium at a Christian concert to feel the presence of God. She didn't need to drive hours away where there's a giant convention or a revival or something else so that if I'm around a bunch of other excited people, I feel excited because excitement itself is not the worship of God. It's the appreciation of who God is. It's the magnification of the Lord and my heart's response to the truth of who God is. We see number three here that worship arises from an awareness of our salvation. Verse 47, my spirit, okay, from deep within, from who she is, this is internal worship, this is her spiritual worship we talked about in Romans 12. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So we see here that in Mary's worship of God, first thing is that she is rejoicing in God. Now this word rejoicing isn't just a simple, wow, I feel good inside, I feel full of the Christmas spirit, I feel just kind of you know, happy in interior you know, of my heart, I just feel happy. This word uh, in rejoicing means to exult. We don't use that word often. This means that there is so much joy the, the, your response to some truth has brought so much joy and energy inside your body that there's literally a physical manifestation to what you're doing. It literally means to leap for joy, to jump for joy, to exult, you're giddy, you're excited. It's a child on Christmas morning. You see how kids get on Christmas morning. You know, they're jumping up and down, they're running around, they're chasing each other, they're all fueled up on all that sugar you gave them from their stocking, and, and they, are, they are exulting, they're jumping up and down. They cannot contain the excitement 
of what is taking place here. This is how Mary feels. There is an external, a physical bubbling out of the rejoicing of the knowledge of who God is. So in Mary's worship, she is bubbling over. She is giddy. She's running. She's, she's excited. She made haste to get to Elizabeth. And it is, there's just this, it is, Mary is visibly excited about God. Should we be visibly excited about God? Should we be so worshipful of him and so rejoicing in what God has done that it should have some kind of outward manifestation? I'm not saying that you need to be crazy. I'm not asking people to run laps around the church you know, as we worship. I'm not asking for that. Uh, but it's not wrong if you have some kind of some, some kind of visible rejoicing in God. Maybe it's just that you lift your eyebrows when you sing. I'm happy to be here. Maybe it's that you smile when you sing. Maybe it's that you sing more forcefully because you're just rejoicing in God. It may be that you're just kind of, you're moving a little bit or you're tapping your leg or you're clapping or, or some folks you knew, you may you feel inclined to raise your hands. Pentecostals, by the way, didn't originate that, you know. In the Bible, they would raise their hands, remember, and worship God. There's nothing wrong with that if that's how you wish to express worship. What I would say about this is, just in your physical representation in your worship, make sure it's, it's natural and organic to you. We don't do it out of peer pressure. We don't do it uh, because it's the right thing to do or right time to do. We don't do it to be showy. Uh, if there is some external, visible manifestation of your worship. But we see here that Mary was rejoicing that what was on the inside was bubbling up and coming out from her. She says, my spirit <clears throat> rejoices in God, my Savior. So Mary's magnification of God arose from the fact that she was aware that she was a sinner, that knowing that God must justly punish sin, and yet God is going to save her. She remembers, she knows her Bible. We're gonna see that in a little bit. She knows her Bible. She knows all the way back from the creation of the world in Genesis 3.15, God promised that one day he was going to supply this one who is going to come and he is going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to defeat Satan forever. And so she is looking forward to that day. She, is, she recognizes that Mary needs a savior herself. So Mary's, a, Mary's worship arises from a sense in which I need saving and God has provided that saving for me. All true worship arises from a sense in which you've been saved. You don't worship anything that has not truly saved you in some way. Uh, when Luke chapter 7, we, we read about the prostitute whom God had saved in Jesus Christ, and she is coming up to him, and what is her response to the fact that Jesus has rescued her both socially and spiritually? What is her response? She takes this ointment, and she dumps it on his feet. She lavishes this gift upon Jesus. There's nothing I can't give that Jesus isn't worth, okay? And she gives this to him. Moreover, she humbles herself, and she's wiping her Jesus' feet with her hair and with her very tears, okay? There's nothing that Jesus isn't worth to her, and so there's a visible response of worship because Jesus rescued her. <clears throat> Moreover, uh, St. Samuel 6 and verse 5, is God has saved Israel from the Philistines, and the ark has finally come back home. We got the ark of God, the manifest presence of God in this ark. We are, it is finally coming home where it belongs. And we read, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Okay, by the way, if you're a person that believes you can only worship God with a piano and an organ, you've got a problem here because most of the instruments in the Bible, zero of them are pianos and zero of them are organs. 
Okay? Are you okay with things like symbols? Can you imagine if we actually brought a symbol into worship here today? I'm not sure under what circumstance there and we'd be bringing a symbol out. But I get the feeling here that this was a jubilant occasion in their worship. They've got tambourines, you know, 60s kids, tambourines. They got uh, castanets. I don't even know what that is right offhand. Uh, they got lyres and harps, and they've got all these different instruments. Whatever instrument you have, friends, bring your drum, bring your kazoo, bring it in, and let's all praise the Lord together. Furthermore, we read later in the passage, in their celebration in verse 16, it says, King David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Do we Baptists need to get a new Bible? <laughs> Do we need a new translation there? Uh, is this kind of dancing before the Lord okay? I hope it is because David is doing it as an act of worship. Now, I'm not saying that all, uh, all modern dances, some of this immoral stuff that people do uh, is, is healthy or should be brought in as an expression of worship. But I do believe that sometimes we can look at worship through our American cultural lens of what we've always done and what we've always seen and we think worship can only look like this. I would just tell you, take a mission trip sometime. And let's see how people express worship through their culture. We would go into uh, minority villages in China, uh, in the province of Yunnan, and we would watch local people worship. And it was really, let's just say it was different, okay? Uh, it wasn't just let's sit in rows and let's look completely bored with God and let's sing songs that we've sung a hundred times. They were singing these songs and they're putting it to music and dance. You know, so you get these ladies and they're going in the circle and they're kind of dancing like this and they've got these little finger drums and they're kind of just banging these drums to the Lord. Is that okay? Are they genuinely worshiping God? They are. Now, I'm not bringing out finger drums next year, next week to, to church, but I do want us to just to recognize that our worship shouldn't be dead, dull, dry, and boring to our spirits, but that we should with all that we are, with our voice and body and in whatever instrument we can find to worship God, we need to offer it up to him. And so even then, their worship arose out of a sense in which God has saved them. Uh, we read after Israel was delivered, as they're being delivered from Pharaoh, remember they're up against the Red Sea, as a family, you're not just crossing the Red Sea. They don't have boats. There's no navy in Israel, okay? And so they're up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh is pressing in. They will die. He's coming there with a vengeance. Your God has harmed our country, and we're here to kill you all down to the last man, woman, and child. And they are fearful. And what does God do? He opens up the Red Sea. And he brings them out through the Red Sea to the other side. Pharaoh, God, finally allows into the Red Sea. And what does God do with the Red Sea? He brings the waves in and crashes and destroys the enemies of Israel. And what does, what does Israel do is just a natural, intuitive response on the other side of the Red Sea. They sing the song of Moses. It's a song of God delivering and rescuing his people from certain doom. Song of Moses is going to, be, is going to be, come back up toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy as they're about to enter the land. Let's remember, it's God who saves us. When we go to take the land and we have to fight these bad guys, God is the one who saves us. In fact, we see the Song of Moses again at the end of the Bible, don't we, in Revelation chapter 15. God has a group of people that he has rescued from destruction and uh, he's rescued them from sin and they will not be destroyed in God's wrath against sin against the rest of the world. And what do they sing again? The Bible says they sing the song of Moses. The song of Moses is the song of the redeemed, those who understand that I rightfully should be dead, I rightfully should be under the judgment of God, but Jesus in his mercy and compassion for me has come down to this world in the form of a babe, lived the life I could not, so when he died it was for me. 
and my sins. And understanding what Jesus has saved me from should, re should result in my heart, like Mary, rejoicing in the Lord. It arises from a sense in which I've been saved. If in our contemplation of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, if it does not produce in our heart a spirit of worship, we have to ask ourselves, what's wrong? There's something wrong, genuinely wrong with that. I would say that if when we hear the words of God and we are singing the praises of God and our heart has really no desire, no intention, we're not impressed with God, we're not gonna engage in worship. Friends, we have either worked really hard to forget the gospel or more likely, it's, it's that we've never received the good news ourselves. You don't see yourself as being rescued by God. It may be that you feel like you've rescued yourself. Okay? Self-righteous, proud people don't worship God. They will sit there silent before the Lord because I am the reason I'm in heaven. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven because maybe Jesus and I have worked a deal out together. He did his part, but really I'm going to heaven because of me. I'm a little better, stronger, faster, smarter, more holy, and more humble than other people. And so if we are proud, self-righteous people, we will not worship. But those who are humble people, of a humble heart, we're gonna see that in Mary. If people who recognize that we have been saved from much, Jesus said in Luke 7, those who have been forgiven much will also do what? They will love much. We love much when we realize we've been forgiven much. Our hearts are naturally stirred when we contemplate great acts of mercy and grace. You know, one of my best Christmas memories as a child growing up, I think the year was about 1986. And it was the hardest, the worst year of my childhood life. My 18 years growing up, it was the worst year. It was the hardest year. I was moving from what we called intermediate school into junior high. I mean, that's a hard enough challenge right there. You know, you're dealing with life changes and things and voices cracking and all that and just the, the difficulty of life. But it also so happened that two years prior, our family had moved to a new home because a lot of different reasons. Uh, my father's business had kind of dropped there wasn't a lot of people moving to Iowa, needing new homes built, and so we didn't have money. And my dad wasn't a guy who believed in welfare, and so we just did the best we could. And so I didn't have a lot of clothes. Uh, there were times I didn't have a winter coat, just had a jean jacket for 32 below weather. You know, there were times where, you know, we didn't, we weren't always assured that there would be food. Sometimes we'd get food from a food pantry, and I can't tell you how many bowls of elbow macaroni with strained tomatoes I ate in my life, and we called it goulash. What a shock when I found out that real goulash actually has cheese and meat later on as a kid. But we ate that forever, and it was just, it was the hardest of times. And that year, we knew there wasn't going to be a, a traditional Christmas. You weren't going to have stockings and candy. You weren't going to have presents under the tree. In fact, there was such a, I hate to use this term, but it was such a depressed spirit within the home that year that nobody even wanted to set up the Christmas tree. There were going to be no decorations. My sister Carrie and I said, you know, we at least need a tree. We go up into the attic. We bring down what I, I imagine is probably Charlie Brown's version of a false Christmas tree. And we set it up, and we just did the best we could. And Christmas came little, with little to no fanfare. Uh, and then that morning, all of a sudden, somebody noticed there's a car driving up our driveway. Mind you, we had a quarter of a mile long driveway in the middle of a cornfield uh, out we were so far out in the sticks. We were in between two cities. We could pick our school district. We were that far out. And this car is driving up, and he stops. And they start bringing in boxes of food. And we were just so excited about the food. We didn't even notice that they had also brought boxes of gifts, individually wrapped, 
And for each of the kids, and there were probably, I don't know, maybe six, seven kids at the time, and they were all individually wrapped, and they had this food, and we're just rejoicing. We are exulting. We're jumping up and down, not because of the presence, but because we have, like, food that's name-brand food. It doesn't even have a government stamp on it. You know, we're just so excited that there's real food in the house. And later on, this guy drove up in this LP tank truck, and he refilled our LP tank. We didn't have natural gas lines into the house. We had this big old tank, and it was dry. We had been heating the house with a wood stove. We couldn't afford to heat the house. And so now we had heat, we had food, we had gifts. And there's my, my response, even as a, as a young boy at that time, was just, who did this? I need to know who did this. And come to find out, it was somebody we didn't even know. There was this little church, and I remember its name because you don't forget great acts, extravagant acts of grace and mercy. It was this, this brand new little church plant in Clear Lake, Iowa called Agape Church. And they gave gifts to a family that didn't even go to their church. We didn't go there. We didn't do anything for them. We didn't offer them anything. They just freely gave to us. This is the message of, of Christmas to us. We, we worship God at Christmas because of his great extravagant display of mercy and grace and love to us. And not only did God do this, he died for us while we were yet sinners. And like the old hymn would say, he loved me ere or before I even knew him. This is why we worship God at Christmas. It's an expression of our, our response of love and worship to a God who is so worthy. And we did nothing to deserve to receive that. We are driven to a state of worship. Back in Revelation chapter five and verse nine, uh, what is it that drives the worship of heaven? It's God's extravagant grace and salvation. It says, they sang a new song. Clearly, there are no Baptists in heaven. They sang a new song. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy, by the way, is the root of worship. <clears throat> in our worship to God, we are expressing his worthiness. Worship is worth-ship. God is worth something to me, and I'm going to offer this to him as a response. He says, worthy are you to open the scrolls, to open up the seal for, for or because, why? What is driving our worship in heaven? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Our sharing of the gospel, friends, the gospel isn't something we do at the beginning of our life to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel is something that drives our worship of God and our service of God every single day of our life. It's to produce the same heart and spirit of worship as did with Mary, who understood that God is her Savior. Number four, we see that worship arises from humility. Verse 48, Mary says this, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That people for years down the road, I don't know, theoretically in 2023 in Ashland, Kentucky, we're still gonna be talking about how God has blessed Mary. She recognizes this and she is overwhelmed in awe of what, what God has done in this display. And she says he has uh, looked at her as a, she calls herself a servant and she, God has looked upon her humble estate. Okay, this is Mary, by the way, one of the most famous women of all the Bible, somebody that Elizabeth has just recognized as the mother of my Lord. Doesn't mean that Mary's the mother of God, okay? She is the mother of the humanity, which is Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man, united in one body without confusion forever, 
Okay, that's, that's who Jesus is. And she recognizes the great privilege that Mary has. And Mary, overwhelmed at the fact that God is producing this child through her body, uh, describes herself as a servant. She describes her humble estate. The word humble here is a word that means low, insignificant, weak, and poor. In Philippians 3, it's even translated vile. Say, Mary? I I wouldn't describe Mary as weak, insignificant, poor, low, and, and or vile. Okay, so Mary is not being just falsely humble, and it's not that Mary is downing herself. Mary has an accurate view of herself. She is a sinner who is in need of a Savior, and she is lost before God without, without God's loving sacrifice of Jesus. And so Mary, she's not the queen of the universe. Mary herself needs a Savior, Okay, she's not immaculately conceived. She's not unique or different from you and I. She is a normal person like you and I that God happened to bless by allowing her to bear the Christ child. She sees herself in humility, and in her humility, she worships God. I would argue that all humble people worship God, and all proud people don't. If we do not worship God, if we are not driven to worship God, if we're not driven to express worship to God, friends, it's not because God is not worthy, it's because we don't understand that he is. It's our pride. Humble people worship God. Mary was in tremendous humility here. She calls herself a servant. She says she is from humble estate, and she offers up these words of praise to God. Does the Bible describe us as weak people or strong people? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. We're weak people. Does the Bible describe us as basically good or basically wicked people? This is that Locke-Hobbs conversation you forgot about in junior high you know, social studies. Are we basically born good or basically born evil? According to the Bible, we are born separated from God because of our own inherent wickedness. The proverb says that foolishness, sinfulness, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it from him. Okay, we are born with this inherent wickedness. David says that I w- in sin I was conceived. It wasn't a sinful conception, but that the, what was produced from this, from this conception was a child in Adam, someone who is wicked. Romans 3, 11 to 12 says, none is righteous. How many is that? I'm not good at math, but I pretty much understand none. None is righteous, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. Okay, a teacher would have counted off on this essay for repetition. None understands, because there's always one of us who thinks we're the exception. Oh yeah, I know that the vast majority of the world, they're pretty wicked people, but you know, I'm basically a good person. The Bible here says no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. It means God has a a perfect path for our life that we're supposed to live, but in sin, we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone off that path. I'm not gonna follow the shepherd, I'm gonna do what I want. He says, God says, this rightly describes the estate of all human beings. We have all turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, so the Bible doesn't see us as basically good people. Does the Bible see us as long-lasting? James 1, 9 through 10 describes us as the flower of the field. Okay, the Bible calls us grass. The Bible calls our life a vapor that's here one moment and then it's gone before you know it. And so we are weak, temporary, wicked people. And, And that isn't fun to hear, I realize that. But what leads us to worship is that humility of understanding this is who I am and God himself is holy 
And this holy God loves me even in this estate of being weak and foolish and wicked. And until we realize that we're of low estate, like Mary, we will not worship God. Proud people do not worship God. Self-righteous people do not worship God. Humble people, they worship the Lord. They see themselves as a servant of God. Now, I want you to see in her humility that Mary's prayer is clearly based upon Hannah's prayer. You remember Hannah from the Old Testament, from your golden book of children's stories? Hannah, who was barren, and she's sad, and she prays to God to give her a child, and God gives her this child. And in response, Hannah worships the Lord, and she says something that's going to sound very familiar to you who have just read the Magnificat. She says, my heart exults in the Lord. From my heart, the inner part of my man, who I am, my heart exults in the Lord. And so Mary's Magnificat is an allusion to Hannah's prayer here. In fact, there's many allusions to Hannah's prayer here in the Magnificat. There's also allusions to the books of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible we often call the law. There are allusions to the books of, book of Psalms. And there are allusions to even the prophets. And so we have here the book, the book of the law. That's the first part of the Bible. We have uh, the, the historical books and the Psalms. That's the middle of your Old Testament. And then you have quotations and allusions from the prophets themselves. That's the end of Mary's Bible at the time. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament. And so Mary knew her Bible, and not just a little bit of the Bible. She didn't just read the Psalms she enjoys. She didn't just read a daily bread. She knew the entirety of her Bible. Why would she know the entirety of your Bible like this? It's because Mary's humble. Mary understands that Mary doesn't have wisdom in and of herself. Mary needs God. Mary needs the Lord's wisdom. Mary knew her Bible in her humility. She knew she needed God's wisdom, and that drove her to the pages of Scripture, so much so that when she just extemporaneously just expounds in this, this great praise to God, what is it that just flows out of her mouth, mouth most noticeably and, and just freely? It's Scripture. Mary knew her Bible. Humble people know their Bible and pray. And the Word of God is the basis of our worship for God. Remember, we talked about that worship begins in the mind. Okay? If you don't know who God is, you cannot worship him. If you don't know what God has done, you cannot worship him. And so all true worship begins with truth and our awareness of the truth of who God is. Then it changes our beliefs, which changes our desires, our affections, and we begin to freely offer to God our worship. That's the process of biblical worship. Mary here is just bleeding out Bible. She's a student of the scriptures. She's not a woman like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says who, where she leans on her own understanding. When we don't read the Bible, that's what we're doing. If we aren't leaning on God's understanding by knowing it, we're leaning on our own understanding. Mary doesn't do that. In fact, uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, talks about how when Mary heard the news of God's words from the, from the shepherds and what the angels shared with them, what did Mary do with these, this truth of God and what he's doing? It says that Mary pondered these things in her heart Mary enjoyed contemplating the words of God, and that led her to worship. All true worship begins with an awareness of who God is. And if we don't read the Bible, we are going to worship uh, a false God, often a God even of our own creation. You're going to believe things to be true of God that just aren't true of God. How can you know what is true of God unless you read it in the Bible? And what we end up doing is we end up taking the hammer and chisel of our mind and we start shaping a God in our own image. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? I refuse to believe in a God who, have you heard that? As soon as those words come out of your mouth, what you've announced is I'm an idolater. 
I'm an idolater. I refuse to believe in a God who, fill in the blank. I refuse to believe in a God who sends people to hell. Which, by the way, does God send people to hell? Yes. I have to say that because all over Facebook it gets posted that God doesn't send people to hell. We're all naturally going there, and he just offers us as a lifeline. Can I tell you, that sounds really great to the human heart, but it's not theologically true. God sends people to hell. Are we okay? God sends people there. The Bible says that those whose names were not found in the Lamb's book of life were what? They were cast, picked up, and thrown into the lake of the fire as a response to God's just and righteous indignation and anger at sin. It is God's just punishment for it. Are you okay with believing in a God that does that? If you say no, you're choosing to be an idolater. It's because what is true about God comes from God's word, not my own thoughts and minds. I don't hold God up to the bar of human wisdom and say, God is only God if he agrees with me. I only believe in a God that agrees with me. Because now who is God? It's me. I'm the measure of God. And if God sends people to hell, I won't believe in him. If God allows childhood cancer and babies to die, I won't believe in that kind of God. Again, we're an idolater. So the word of God is the basis of true, the worship of the true God, or he's, we're not worshiping God at all. We're worshiping something we've created, something that is fashioned in our image. As C.S. Lewis said, uh, God created man in his image, and ever since then, man has tried to return the favor. We want God to look like us. But the truth is, he doesn't. God says, my ways are not your ways. My high, ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And we worship that God. Well, in humility, Mary knew her Bible. She knew what was true about God because of her understanding of God's word. And, and if you haven't already done this before, I just, we'll, we'll share more about this later. If you've never read through the Bible in a year, I want you to listen to Richard Queen's announcement that's gonna be coming up, okay? Plug for Richard. Uh, listen up. I would encourage you to consider making this the year that you read through God's word together with us as a church. Well, finally here, number five, worship focuses on the person and work of God or the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, at the time of Mary, she didn't really know who Jesus was other than he's a babe in her belly, and so she's worshiping God. So we talk about the person and work of God. The person of God is who he is. We describe somebody. Oh, you guys know Rick Musser? He's that guy with white hair, and he likes smoked meat. Okay, I have described his person, and I have described his work. Okay? We do the same thing with God. The person of God are his attributes. Who is God? He is holy. He is righteous. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. That's the person of God. That's a component of our worship. Also, the works of God. What has God done? Now, as we read through the Magnificat, there isn't a single verse that does not extol the person and work of who God is. She just, her worship is just filled with, with magnifying the Lord and who he is. Look what she says, verse 49. For he, God, who is mighty, that's the person of God, has done great things for me. That's the work of God. And holy is his name. That's the person of God. God is holy. He is set apart. He is distinct from creation. He is righteous. And his mercy, God's withholding punishment that I rightly deserve, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. What's she praising about God here? His sovereignty, that our God is in control of all things. People rise and people fall based upon the power of God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is where? It's in the hand of the Lord. The king. And like the rivers of water, he'll turn it wherever he needs it to go. 
Our God is sovereign and in control. It's really easy to worship God when you know he's sovereign. When he, is, when he is over all things, he's in control of all things. That my life is not a series of cosmic accidents. But like Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. And so Mary is extolling his sovereignty. He has filled the hungry with good things. She sees God as her Jehovah Jireh, her provider. Everything that I have, it all comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights from whom there is no shadow of turning. That is my God. And she says, and the rich he has sent away empty, that God will deal with those who have done wrong or those who have oppressed. It's not necessarily the rich, but just here, proverbially speaking, there were many of those who were rich in those days because it was on the backs of people uh, that they had wronged, okay? This isn't villainizing wealth. Okay, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is significant. She is talking about how God has helped Israel, and then who does she name? Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. You remember what the Abrahamic covenant was, this promise of God. Split the animals in half, God walks through by himself, promises to fulfill this. It's a, it's a, it's a one-sided covenant. I promise I will do this for you, Abraham, of give you a promise of land and seed and blessing. Look at the stars of the sky, look at the sand of the sea. I'm going to multiply your nation. I'm going to give you this land. And I'm going to make you be a blessing to all the people on earth. Did Israel feel like God had blessed them at this point? Were, this, were they such great swells and numbers of Israel that they were mighty in and of themselves? No. They were in a defeated state right then, weren't they? They were under Rome. Did they have complete sovereignty over the land that they were in? No. They're in what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles, a time uh, you know, from the book of Daniel on when Israel will be under the judgment and the rule of Gentile nations, and they are still under that to this day until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Okay, and so Israel doesn't have all the promises of God fulfilled in them, and yet what does Mary say in the middle of their suffering? He has helped us. Even while they're not in control of their own land and they are under the power of the Roman government who, is, you know, who is, seems to have conquered the whole world, she refers back to the Abrahamic covenant that God will fulfill his promises. And so throughout the Magnificat, Mary just continues to extol who God is, what he has done, and based upon what he has done, she has confidence that he will do it in the future. And so with that, she worships God. We don't always get some of that gravitas in some of, our, 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 some of the newer songs. I say only some. So now I'm not villainizing all new songs. But some of our old hymns, they really did a good job at extolling who God is, didn't they? I mean, we used to sing songs like immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible and hid from our eyes. We, you know, Martin Luther, our mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Or we sing, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden glare, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And then, then what? Then, as a response to God's salvation, then sings my soul, my Savior, my God to thee, how great thou art. Friends, that's where worship comes from. It comes from an awareness that God is great, that we're not, that God is, God is glorious, and we are humble servants like Mary. 
that God has done great things for us and has saved us from our sins and our hearts respond with just an overwhelming, with an exultation, with an excitement within us about who God is and what he has done that it has to pour out, if not physically, then certainly verbally as we proclaim the praises of God and as we sing his praises. Is that how your worship goes? I would argue that is how all worship goes if we worship like Mary, with an understanding of who God is and what he has done we understand ourselves properly and what he saved us from. Let's close this in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we, as we study the Magnificat, as we study Mary's prayer here and the, just the significance of it, Lord, we're reminded ourselves that we are sinners. That within ourselves, like Paul said, that is within my flesh dwells no good thing. That we do not commend ourselves to you through our, pray, through our, our, our good works. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in your sight. And so, Lord, we just today, we, uh, whether we're born again, whether we're not convinced that we're a Christian yet, God, we all as your children come and we kneel before you and we worship you and we thank you that you have this Christmas given us an annual reminder that you are a God that can be trusted. And therefore, you are a God that should be worshiped. God, I pray that through this Christmas season that we will be worshipers of you. Remind us of the great sin that you have saved us from, the great hell that awaited us, and just the glorious future that you have promised us and the eternal life that begins right now. We offer this up with just a heart of praise tonight and this morning in Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.